I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 18th, 2011. We're going to do our light edition today. Got some more apologetics lectures. These are not from uh, Pastor Charles St. Ange. They're from uh, Dr. Adam Francisco. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy stuff being said out there, and a good heaping dose of the truth really uh, goes a long way. <laughs> That's all I can say. And well, we, we like to give you big heaping doses of the truth, and we do not sugarcoat it. We don't cherry flavor it or bubblegum flavor it. We give it to you straight up, even if it tastes nasty to you. This is the good stuff that you need. Anyway, uh, what we're going to do today is we're going, I'm going to, you know, I, I might switch back and forth between uh, Pastor Charles St. Ange and Adam Francisco. Adam Francisco, who uh, teaches at Concordia, California, which is in Irvine, California, my alma mater. And when I was there, it was Christ College, and they changed it to Concordia, so I always lovingly refer to it as Con U. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, just kind of um, neither here nor there. I don't know why I'm sharing that. It's a therapy, apparently. But anyway, uh, he did, he's been doing a series of lectures on the contemporary challenges to the New Testament Gospels. And uh, so we're going to be listening to number one of his lectures. And, I, and it, here's the deal. I, the thing I like about this is some of the things that uh, Charles St. Ange picks up on uh, Dr. Francisco picks on, but he picks up some stuff that uh, uh, Charles St. Ange does not pick up on and vice versa. And anyway, you, you listen, you, you, uh, you, how, was it Vince Lombardi who said, hey, gentlemen, this is a football. Yeah, you, listen, the, the, these basics are worth you going over and over and over again so that they are part of your thinking so that when the time comes and somebody says something that uh, they heard or picked up from a, you know, a, a, an interview with, 
Bart Ehrman or you know whoever the latest uh, greatest Bible critic is out there, you're ready with a ready stock of of just great stuff to you know to answer those challenges and proclaim Christ and Him crucified for our sins. So uh, here's lecture number one: eyewitness accounts and the non-canonical gospels by Dr. Adam Francisco. Here we go. Uh, today we're going to look at the question, or actually the next three weeks, look at the question or the issue of the reliability of the New Testament, in particular the, new, uh, the gospel records. Uh, today we'll look at just the basic case for the historical reliability of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, followed by uh, a challenge to their reliability. That is the challenge that comes from popular scholarship that says Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't the only ancient biographies concerning Jesus' life, uh, teachings, uh, death, and, and so on and so forth. There are other ancient witnesses to Jesus, um, and it was the church that arbitrarily selected Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, when they could have chosen from a whole pantheon uh, of books. Uh, next week, we'll look at the charge that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are textually unreliable. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the name Bart Ehrman, but if you watched PBS or the History Channel on Christmas morning or Easter morning, chances are you've at least seen this man uh, in a documentary where he makes some startling claims that the, the manuscript tradition behind the New Testament, especially the Gospels, is so corrupted that you just simply can't trust it. I'll challenge that claim uh, next week. And then the third week, we'll look at the claim that has been discredited for over a century, but now is beginning to become popular again. And that is the claim that says that the gospel writers simply co-opted from ancient Greek and Persian mystery religions. That is this idea of a dying and rising uh, God, man, isn't something that uh, that is born with within the, uh, the Christian tradition, but rather is borrowed from other pagan traditions. We'll look at that the third week. But today, we're going to look at the general liability of the New Testament and look at also the charge that uh, there are other gospels out there that are just as reliable as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that give a different picture of Jesus, um, and one can just simply choose to follow that Jesus instead. First of all, the question, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of sufficient historical worth that we can gain from them a reliable picture of Jesus or an accurate picture of Jesus, his claims and his activity? We're all going to say, of course, right? Uh, out, out there, wherever there is, uh, this claim is becoming increasingly challenged. It's been challenged for quite some time, but uh, uh, most of the challenges to the, to the reliability of the New Testament have historically come from scholars. And they've been, the question has been debated amongst scholars. Uh, around the 1990s, though, a group known as the Jesus Seminar brought all this critical scholarship against, and skeptical scholarship against, the, against historic Christianity and made it public and published... Uh, the results of their so-called scholarly findings in popular books. And now we're seeing, since the advent of uh, uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code 
and other works that have been put out recently, we're seeing that it's becoming much more popular. In fact, back in about 2006 or so, I was in, uh, living in New York at the time, uh, where I, and I went to, not, they didn't have Costco there, they had Sam's Club, and I was shopping probably for wine, um, <laughs> and went down the book aisle and was startled to find that at the, at the end table, there were hundreds and hundreds of copies of a book entitled Misquoting Jesus, written by a man named Bart Ehrman, uh, that makes the claim uh, that not only is, are the Gospels corrupted, but the church itself has invented this picture of Jesus. And that was for the masses at Costco or at Sam's Club. So this, this challenge to the reliability of the of historic Christianity is becoming much more popular. In fact, uh, some documentaries that have come out as of late uh, are challenging it in a very popular way in movie theaters. Uh, Bill Maher, or Marr, uh, put out the documentary called uh, Religulous a couple years ago, which became the, was the highest grossing documentary ever in terms of how much money he made off of it, and also became the most popular documentary of that year. I think it was 2007 or 2008. Uh, so back to this question. Are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of sufficient historical worth that we can gain from them a reliable picture of Jesus, his claims, and activity? We're going to say yes um, from the standpoint of faith. Can we, however, as reasonable people, Maybe historically-minded people answer the question the same way. Um, I, as well as uh, Dr. Van Voorhis, have been trained in history, and I think he would say, in fact, I know he would say, along with me, that absolutely, as a historian, when we approach the ancient world, the first century, when we approach Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, our conclusions, not from the standpoint of faith, but from the standpoint of historians or historiography, would say, absolutely, they're reliable. Why? First of all, they claim to be eyewitness accounts or written by companions of eyewitnesses. Uh, for example, John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, around verse 34, 35, John says, He who has, bo- who has seen these events bears witness so that you may- might believe. He's writing as an eyewitness in... in in John 19, to the crucifixion, but referring by extension to the life of Jesus. John was an eyewitness. Uh, Luke, not an eyewitness, but a companion of of eyewitnesses, records in the first four chapters of his gospel that he's done a tremendous amount of research. He's interviewed people who knew Jesus and has put together this orderly account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But so what? They claim to be... Uh, eyewitnesses or companions of eyewitnesses, does that mean they really were? How does a historian answer uh, questions of concerning history? Whether, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were eyewitnesses. Well, a historian typically follows, unless they're a bad historian, a good historian will follow the evidence and let the conclusions of the evidence lead them or let the evidence lead them to to conclusions, regardless of what those conclusions are. If we look back in history, and we look for whatever we have concerning the earliest Christian church, concerning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the evidence says these were eyewitnesses or companions of eyewitnesses. We call this the external evidence 
for the reliability of the New Testament. Uh, there are two primary sources, but certainly more than this, uh, that we typically go to. The first is a man named Papias, who was a disciple or a student of the Apostle John. We don't have his works. They've been lost. But, his, but what he wrote in some of his works have been preserved in later writings. For example, the 4th century church historian Eusebius records Papias saying, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings and deeds of Christ. That is, Mark's not writing a, a chronological count. In the ancient world, biographies weren't typically written that way anyway. Uh, Mark neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, but afterwards he accompanied Peter who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing he took a special care, not to omit anything he had heard, and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. Then he goes on in just one brief comment and says, Matthew put together the, the speeches of the Lord in the Hebrew language. So we know Mark, while he's not an eyewitness, was a companion of Peter, an eyewitness. Uh, and here he makes a comment about Matthew also writing a gospel, Matthew being a disciple or an eyewitness of Jesus' life. Some people don't like Papias, though, uh, because what we have from, what pa from Papias' writings are from the 4th century, uh, even though he himself is an er early 2nd century figure, but all his works have been lost. Another source, though, that uh, probably the best source uh, that the historian goes to concerning the, the eyewitnesses and the companions of Jesus, uh, of, of the eyewitnesses, is Polycarp. Polycarp also was a student of the Apostle John. Uh, we don't have his writings either, unfortunately, but they've been preserved in Irenaeus, who's a late 2nd century Author. He wrote a fantastic work called Against Heresies, where he attacks uh, the heresies that are, that, are, that are emerging and increasing across the Mediterranean Rim in his, his day and age. He dies in 2000, or 200, uh, 202. Um, in his work, uh, he tells us exactly who these gospel writers were. Because if you go to the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... They don't, in the, the original manuscript, or the, the earliest manuscripts we, we have, they don't tell us who wrote these works. In our, our printed editions of the New Testament, it says the gospel according to Matthew, according to, to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. That's not in the manuscripts. Um, so we go to Polycarp uh, through Irenaeus, and here's what uh, Polycarp said. Matthew published a gospel in writing among the Hebrews in their own language while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel and founding the church in Rome. But after their death, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, also transmitted us to us in writing what Peter used to preach. And Luke, Paul's associate, also set down in a book the gospel that Paul used to preach. Later, John, the Lord's disciple, the one who lay on his lap, also set out the gospel while living at Ephesus in Asia Minor. Uh, according to Irenaeus, quoting Polycarp, these are the ones who are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the ones who are in the, the, a good position to record accurately about what Jesus said and did. 
Irenaeus also mentions a whole host of others, not a host, but several other authors who have claimed to put together an account of Jesus' life, uh, his teachings, and his death. Uh, but Irenaeus claims that these, these folks were not in a position. They didn't even know Jesus, nor did they move in circles uh, where peop- in which people who had been with Jesus during the course of his ministry uh, moved. Um, when you take a look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John historically, uh, the church has always said that these are the these are the canonical gospels. These are the only gospels, the only biographies, if you will, of Jesus' life that are worth uh, that are trustworthy. Some of you might know, though, that there are gospels out there with titles like the Gospel according to Thomas or the Gospel according to Peter which seemed legitimate. Thomas, the one who put his hand in, in Jesus' wounds, seems like he would write an accurate gospel. The problem with these texts are, and we'll go over the contents of them shortly, is that they weren't actually written by Thomas or Peter. These are later inventions by heretical groups that are trying to pass themselves off as being legitimate in some, some way, shape, or form. Uh, getting back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though, uh, for those of you who have studied uh, apologetics, uh, historical apologetics in particular, this stuff won't be too new to you, but perhaps to some of you it will be. So I'm going to go over some of the, the details. One of the questions that is oftentimes raised concerning the reliability of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is, do, is what we have from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has it been accurately transmitted from when they actually wrote because we don't have what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John originally written. We don't have the original autographs, as historians would say. And we shouldn't expect to have them. Uh, ancient documents, if they're not preserved in the sands of Egypt, tend to decay pretty quickly. But we have a whole tremendous amount of manuscripts that were copied from these original autographs. Uh, the, the number goes up yearly, but we're at about f- uh, almost 6,000 manuscripts behind the printed edition of the New Testament. It's about 5,862, I think. That was the last count I I have. But the the number continues to increase as they unearth or uncover new manuscripts. Uh, The earliest, almost complete Bible that we have in in, in a manuscript edition dates to about the early 4th, maybe late 3rd century. It's about 200 years after the life of Christ. Uh, that might sound shocking. It shouldn't. Uh, we have fragments of the Bible, fragments of the New Testament in particular, that get us much closer to the life of Jesus or, uh, if you want, the life of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For example, uh, we have a fragment known as the Rylands Fragment. It's a, just a short little section, I think about six verses from the Gospel of John, uh, sometimes referred to as P52. Uh, that dates to about 125 A.D. The Gospel of John was probably written around 90 A.D. That's 30 years. To have that short of a time span between the original writing and the earliest manuscript for ancient literature is unheard of. Uh, we have it, though. It's, uh, I, think, I believe it's um, housed in a, at a library in Ireland. Um, another... A fragment that we have is the uh, what's called 7Q5. Uh, this is kind of controversial. 
Uh, but it's a small, I mean, a tiny little fragment with just a few words uh, that was found in one of the caves at the Dead Sea Scroll uh, findings in Cave 7 in Qumran. Just a few words. Uh, scholars have, in particular, a, a Spanish co- scholar named O'Callahan, Jose O'Callahan, um, <laughs> probably an immigrant, uh, has taken that fragment and, and looked at the word and compared it to any other piece of ancient literature we found and found that it only matches up with the Gospel of Mark. He's dated the fragment some, to somewhere between 65 and 50 A.D. That's huge. That's absolutely unheard of for ancient literature. Um, there are a whole host of other fragments we could cover, but just to emphasize how important some of these findings are and how, how reliable the transmission record of the New Testament, in particular the Gospels, from when they were first written to the earliest manuscripts and fragments that we have, are I want to compare compare this to some of the other some other ancient literature. In fact, the best attested ancient literature that we have. So many of you have heard the the, the name uh, Josephus, the ancient uh, Roman uh, Jewish Roman historian of the first century, dies right in 100 A.D. He wrote two major works. One was Jewish Antiquities or the history of the Jewish people, uh, and also the Jewish wars, recounting the various Jewish rebellions against the Romans in the first century. The Jewish war, uh, there are about uh, nine manuscripts we have attesting to it. Just nine. The earliest manuscript we have dates to the 5th century. About 400 years have passed from the time Josephus first wrote and the earliest manuscript we have. And no historian out there would, would say that Josephus is untrustworthy, that the, the manuscripts and then the published editions of Josephus that we have are unreliable. In fact, it's the chief source for historians for understanding some of the political turmoil in, in late first century Palestine. That's the best uh, attested document that we have from the ancient world from the first century. Uh, some of you have heard of Tacitus, the Roman historian who wrote the Annals of Rome, some it's several dozens uh, uh, volumes. Uh, we only have a few of them. Uh, only three manuscripts have been found attesting to the, the annals of imperial, of imperial Rome or the annals of Rome. The earliest one dates to 900 A.D. So about 800 years have pa- passed from the time Tacitus first wrote to the, to the earliest manuscript that we have. And where do historians go to to understand some of the, 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 the political inside uh, information of, the, of ancient Rome, first century Rome? Tacitus. They don't blink an eye in trust, uh, trusting Tacitus as a generally reliable uh, record of, of first century Rome. Uh, Suetonius wrote a work, some of you may have read it in elementary school, they used to read it anyway, called The Lives of the Caesars. There are about 100-plus manuscripts of this. Uh, The earliest one dates to the 10th century. 900 years passed, or have passed, since the time Suetonius first wrote and the earliest manuscript we have. And again, a historian doesn't bat an eye in trusting this as uh, an accurate record of what Suetonius actually or originally wrote. Uh, The list goes on. We could pick up on other ones, um, but I don't want to belabor the point. But the point, though, is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
There is, in terms of the transmission of what they wrote from when they originally wrote and to the records that we have of what they wrote, that the time frame is so minimal that a historian is not going to have a problem considering them as generally or basically reliable historical material. So why, then, are so many historians uh, critical of historic Christianity or classic Christianity? Why, then, are so many people, do so many people not believe what's recounted in these records? The Sunday school answer is, of course, sin, <laughs> sinful disobedience. Um, and that's, that's the right answer. There are, of course, other answers as well. Uh, from a historian's vantage point, or from an academic vantage point, the big problem historians and others have with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is not that they're good historical records, but it's the actual content that they find in these historical records. Uh, when, they, when many historians approach the ancient world, in particular the ancient Christian church, and they find claims that Jesus walked on water, that he rose from the dead a couple days after he died, that's their problem with the text. Miracles don't happen, according to them. So an ancient record that says a miracle happened, they will discount as being sort of a text that is basically reliable but has allowed for some mythological accretions to creep in. In, in the realm of Christian apologetics, where, we, where the Christian tries to defend the reliability of, 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 uh, of historic Christianity... Oftentimes, the, the beginning point, the starting point of the conversation is not necessarily making a case for the reliability of the New Testament, but is making sure that the person you're speaking with doesn't a priori, that is, before looking at the evidence, rule out the miraculous. Because that's typically what you get, is people don't believe that miracles happen. They assume miracles don't happen. So when they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they consider it as mythology. Now, moving to the claim that, well, that it is true that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are well attested. There are lots of historians, non-Christian historians out there who will, who will make that claim. Uh, many of them will go further and say, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't the only records recording Jesus' life and death. There are other, as some have put it, other ancient biographies concerning Jesus out there. Why shouldn't we choose some of those over and against uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Uh, this question has become very uh, uh, popular today with the advent of, of the Jesus Seminar and other groups. And many of them are making such radical claims that there are Gospels out there uh, that aren't canonical Gospels, but predate the canonical Gospels. For example, anybody heard of the Gospel of Peter? apart from when I mentioned it a little earlier. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a fan, fascinating gospel. Um, it's a, it was found in Upper Egypt, several hundred miles south of Cairo, um, in a, a coffin of a dead monk, a second century monk, or third century monk. Um, it only, it's only a fragment of what's purported as the gospel of Peter, and it picks up uh, at Jesus' trial. 
and records how he was put on trial not by Pontius Pilate, but by Herod Antipas. Um, and when he's, he's dead on the cross or crucified on the cross, he's put in the tomb of, of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Um, the tomb is sealed. When people come to check out the tomb, they find the stone rolled away. But then out of the tomb come two angels with their heads extending up into the, he- the sky. And then there's a third person who's not named. Presumably it's Jesus. His head reaches beyond the heavens. And then the question is asked of this person, did you preach to those sleeping? And it's not this third person who answers, but it's the cross. The cross comes kind of floating out, kind of like a pogo stick, out of the tomb and says, yes. And then this third person, who's presumably Jesus, is taken up into heaven. Uh, John Dominic Crossan and I believe Elaine Pagels, two prominent uh, early Christian historians. They're not Christian themselves, though. Uh, but scholars of Christ, alleged scholars of Christianity say that the Gospel of Peter probably dates to about 40 or 50 A.D. And it's the Gospel from which Matthew, Mark, and Luke probably used as their source material. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas is another one out there that many are claiming is an early Gospel. Um, some of you, the Gospel of Thomas is a little more popular than the Gospel of Peter. Um, if you've seen the movie Stigmata, about 15 years old now, uh, there was a a quote from the Gospel of Thomas uh, that has Jesus saying, if you pick up a rock, I am there. If you turn over a a log, I am there. Uh, The Gospel of Thomas is is unlike the Gospel of Peter. It doesn't purport to describe Jesus' life. It's a collection of sayings of Jesus, logia, 114 sayings of Jesus, um, and if you read through it, and you can go online and find a translation, uh, Jesus doesn't come off like the Jesus you find in the canonical Gospels. He comes off almost like a Hindu. Uh, he says things like, the, gos- or the, the kingdom of God is within you, not among you, as you have in the Gospel of Matthew, but the kingdom of God is within you. Um, those uh, who discover the interpretations, the secret meanings, or the secret words of Jesus, those people will be saved. Uh, The first will be last, and the last will all become one. Um, And at the tail end of the Gospel, Thomas, the almost startling uh, claim, especially when you consider a lot of feminists love the Gospel, Thomas, says that, uh, has Simon Peter saying, Make Mary leave us, Jesus, for females don't deserve life. Jesus responds, Look, I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas also has been dated to about 50 A.D. by some of these, histor- these so-called historical scholars. The problem with the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and every other non-canonical gospel is that they are, actually aren't this early. Thomas and Peter are... are uh, are the best attested non-canonical Gospels, but they, the Gospel of Thomas, for example, dates to about the late 2nd century. So it couldn't have been written by Thomas. He's dead and gone by then. The Gospel of Peter dates to about 190 A.D. Um, so the person who wrote it, even though he, he claims to be Peter, um, wasn't the, the Apostle Peter. 
All right, we're going to pause the lecture right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pyre Christian. We will be right back. Being good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. 
Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. We're back. Warning, uh, Bart Ehrman is on the cutting edge of 19th century higher criticism. Yeah, he hasn't even entered the 21st century yet, seriously. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world and... It's August, and <laughs> we're experiencing the summer slump. Um, if you'd like to have mercy on us, we truly could t- could use the help. I'm trying to keep a stiff upper lip and kind of be, um, well, you know, positive about it. But <laughs> the reality is it's a little bit of a train wreck. Anyway, if you'd like to support us during the lean summer months, we truly could use the help. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6. 95 cents every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is the balance of Dr. Adam Francisco's lecture uh, regarding well the non-canonical books in the Gospels and the historical reliability of the uh, of the New Testament, here we go. Um, in encountering some of these claims that you'll you'll find out there, um, most people you'll find, and this is more of a practical consideration, but most people you'll find simply believe that because something's called the Gospel according to such and such, that it must be a good historically reliable text. None of these things are worth of any historical merit. They're interesting from the, the vantage point of seeing how heresy develops within the church, but they don't attest to the life of Jesus. The people who wrote these documents um, were lived much later uh, than the time of the apostles, so they're, they're in terms of describing the life of Jesus, they're unreliable, completely unreliable. There are other um, texts out there, though, that are even more interesting than, say, for example, the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, one is a work called The Secret Gospel of Mark. Now, this was dis- allegedly discovered in the 1950s. And what it is is not a complete gospel, but just a simple fragment of a purported gospel that Mark wrote after he wrote the, the, the gospel that you've read. Um, a, a scholar from Columbia University named Morton Smith, some people called him Morton the Baldy, he had a bald head, um, claimed that in the 1950s when he was at the Mar Saba Monastery in the West Bank of Jerusalem, or just outside Jerusalem, uh, he was combing through or, or cataloging texts in the library. 
and he came across an unheard-of letter from a church father named Clement of Alexandria, who died around 215 A.D., or A.D. 215. And in this letter of Clement of Alexandria, Morton the Baldy claimed, uh, he refers to the secret gospel of Mark, which, is a, uh, which are texts or paragraphs that are supposed to be added into the gospel of Mark once somebody has reached a certain stage in their Christian life. They've reached a certain stage in their, in their progress as, a, as a, a true believer that now, they can under, now they're, they, uh, they're, they're mature enough to understand some of these secret things that Jesus did. Um, and I, I have to warn you, this is um, uh, rather, I think, blasphemous and disgusting, but just so you're aware of it, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read what is to be added to Mark to you. According to Morton Smith, Clement of Alexandria tells the person he's writing to, that after Mark chapter 10, verse 35, the following paragraph is to be added or is to be read by those who have reached a certain spiritual stage. Uh, it, it reads as follows. And they came into Bethany, and a certain woman whose brother had died was there. And coming, she prostrated herself before Jesus and said to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. But the disciples rebuked her, and Jesus, being angered, went off with her into the garden where the tomb was, and straightway a great cry was heard from the tomb. And going near, Jesus rolled away the stone from the door of the tomb, and straightway, uh, going in where the youth was, he stretched forth his hand and raised him, seizing his hand. But the youth, looking upon Jesus, loved him and began to beseech him that he might be with him. And going out of the tomb, they came into the house of the youth, for he was rich." And after six days, Jesus told him what to do. And in the evening, the youth came to him wearing a linen cloth over his naked body. And he remained with him that night, for Jesus taught him the mystery of the kingdom of God. And thence arising, he returned to the other side of the Jordan. Jesus taught him the mystery of the kingdom of God. Morton the Baldy or Morton Smith claimed that this is a reference to Jesus' homosexuality. Um, and the, the interesting thing about this document is when Morton Smith went to the monastery in the 1950s, uh, he took pictures of this alleged letter from Clement to, to the person, he, uh, Theodora, I believe, was the, was the person he was, who he was writing to. Um, he took pictures of it and by the, in the 1970s wrote a book about the secret gospel of Mark. Um, when it was published, there were all sorts of scholars who fell all over themselves praising Morton Smith for being so courageous and finding this, this wonderful discovery. In fact, Elaine Pagels, who's a very prominent historian out of Princeton, says that his scholarly credentials are impeccable. Um, as it turns out, though, the, the, uh, the, the ancient book that Morton Smith took pictures of has disappeared. People have looked at the photograph and found that the actual right, the Greek, has what's called the forger's tremor. You know when you, you forge your, your spouse's name um, and you, you're trying to do your best job, but you do it so slowly that there's a little, you can, uh, there, that, the forger's tremor is throughout the entire document. Um, and when Morton Smith was asked where the ancient book went, he said, I don't know. Um, also, as it turns out, Morton Smith had recently at Columbia University been denied tenure, uh, per, he thought, because he was a homosexual himself. And most scholars now 
uh, are convinced that this thing is a forgery. Um, and it was done for, by Morton Smith to s- sort of say, see, I'm worth my scholarly merit. Um, his rep- he's, he's, I think he died in 1991. But believe it or not, there are still folks out there, hist- uh, uh, historians of the early Christian church, who say the g- secret gospel of Mark is legitimate. It's even despite the fact that it's a pretty, pretty clear that it's a forgery. Um, another non-canonical text out there that you should be aware of um, is oftentimes referred to as the Jesus Papers. Um, anybody remember the Da Vinci Code brouhaha and the uh, the, the court case uh, surrounding the Da Vinci Code that claimed that Dan Brown plagiarized from Michael Bejent and his work, uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Well, Michael Bejent uh, wrote a book called The Jesus Papers where he made the startling claim that he was in Jerusalem a couple, about a decade, or in the 1990s, a decade before he wrote this book. And when he was there, some construction workers came to him because they heard that this great scholar was in town. And when they were digging uh, for... to digging the found, or to, to uh, build the foundations of a new high-rise apartment complex, they had uncovered a scroll written in Aramaic, and they asked Michael Bejent to come check out this scroll. Michael uh, went to the site, claims that he saw the scroll and that it was written in Aramaic, admits he didn't know Aramaic, but somehow was able to date the scroll to 634 A.D., and then claimed that he went to, to validate what he, the claims he made. He went to some well-known archaeologists in, in Jerusalem at the time and asked them to confirm what, what his conclusions. And in fact, they did, he claimed. It just so happens those archaeologists are dead. Um, and were dead, actually, at the time that he purportedly uh, <laughs> saw this document. But... Uh, Bejent claims in the book Jesus Papers that the scroll, which isn't around anymore, it's gone missing, conveniently, was actually a scroll that Jesus himself wrote in 630, or in, in, um, I'm, did I say 634 AD? I'm confusing my Islamic stuff with my New Testament stuff, um, in, uh, in, in 34 AD, um, a couple of years after Jesus was allegedly crucified, according to Michael Bejent. Michael Bejent says, in the Jesus papers, in his scroll, Jesus claims poignantly that he is not the Son of God and that he wasn't crucified, but rather it was made to look like he was crucified. Where do you think Michael Bejent got this particular information from or this theology from? I'd be willing, well, from the devil is a good answer. Uh, <laughs> I'd be willing to bet the claims of Islam. This is exactly the claims of Islam. Here's the thing, though, with the Jesus papers. There's no reason whatsoever to believe that he he found the scroll because there's no evidence whatsoever for it. So, obviously, none of us are going to rely on it. But the interesting thing is out there, there are lots of folks out there who say that this, because it's possible, we have to take it into consideration. But when a historian approaches the ancient world or anything in history... We recognize anything is possible. Uh, As Dr. John Montgomery oftentimes says, that in a contingent universe, anything is possible except squeezing toothpaste back into a toothpaste tube. Uh, But when we approach history, we don't look for what's possible. We look for what's probable. And we base our probabilities on, on the evidence. 
when you look at the non-canonical Gospels, and it's not just the, the four we've looked at. There are over a dozen of these things, depending on how you count them. Uh, not a single one of them has any evidence pointing to the fact that it, they might be even first century material. They're all late documents written most the time, if they're not forgeries, written most of the time by heretical Christians who borrowed from Greco-Roman mystery religions and, and, and Gnostic philosophies and developed a sort of aberration of, of Christianity. The only gospel records that we have that are any historical worth, from the standpoint of the historian, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the only ones attested to by ancient writers as having been written by eyewitnesses or people who moved in the circles of eyewitnesses. That is, when they wrote... The material they wrote was, was drawn from the eyewitnesses themselves and was also checked against the eyewitnesses or the, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Uh, so if you hear out there these claims that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't reliable, the simple answer is baloney or hogwash. They're absolutely reliable. Um, even as a person, uh, even if you weren't a person of faith, you could rest assured that these are good historical historically reliable texts. Um, I've gone, I think, too long. I was supposed to stop earlier uh, to ask for any questions. But let me go ahead and stop here and see if you have any questions. Uh, concerning Josephus' work, mm -hmm. does he uh, validate the miracles in any way? Uh, in his work, Antiquities, there's a, a passage. Paul Meyer makes quite a bit about this, the, the LCMS historian um, in Antiquities, there's a passage that refers to Jesus performing miracle. Jesus, a good man who performed miracles, who died on a cross. And then there's one little clause that refers to him rising from the dead. And if you look at the different manuscripts, some of them say his followers say he rose from the dead. Others say he rose from the dead. And it's caused a lot of uh, questions about um, what Josephus actually wrote. The earliest manuscript is an Arabic translation of Josephus, and it says, uh, has Josephus saying that he performed miracles, died on a cross, and many say he, he rose from the dead. Josephus was a Jew. He couldn't have believed he rose from the dead, I don't think, and remained a Jew. Although there is a um, contemporary Jewish historian named Pincus Lapid, who wrote a book called, L-A-P-I-D-E, that's his last name, wrote a book called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. And he comes to the conclusion, it's almost startling, that based on all the historical evidence approaching this first century, this purported first century event as a normal historian would, he has to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. There's no other way to explain the empty tomb and the claims of the early church. He remains a Jew. Uh, he accounts for it as an anomaly. Um, but that's where the historical evidence leads. Um, I'm kind of struck by the, the um, a, a, a blunder, it seems to me, that the, the contemporary scholars have made. Uh, as you were describing it, it sounded like they were say, you were saying that they didn't think that the transmission of the original documents to the texts we have today was accurate or, or a good, was, right, that it was transmitted correctly because of its content. Now, it seems to me that's a total logical fallacy. It's one thing to say, how well was the text transmitted from the, from the autographs to today? 
And another thing to say, what were the autographs true? And it seems like they're saying that they don't think the auto, that, that the the events described actually happen, and therefore the transmission mm-hmm. of yes. these right. I mean, okay, so let's say they were all fables, right, about Christ's resurrection and so on. It doesn't follow from that that the texts were translated transmitted poorly to us, and it seems right. like a complete blunder. It, it, do they have an answer to that, or are they really did they really just make that bad a mistake? Um, really good question. There's a, in much of historiography, there is a, a, a naturalistic bias, if you will, that says we have to explain things naturally. Um, and so when it comes to these well-attested miracles, uh, we've got to find some sort of natural explanation. Um, some of them will go down the route you're referring to, referring to and say, well, this is just something that was invented. And, and by a stroke of luck was passed on, um, and people believed it by a stroke of luck. There are a lot of scholars will say we've got to, f- we've, they, they don't know how it happened. We've got to figure out how, because they, they will say these are good texts. It's a good manuscript tradition, but we've got to figure out somehow how these, these, these myths crept in. They don't have an answer for it. There are lots of theories, but no, um, no answer that is grounded by evidence, if, if you will. Does that make sense? Can I follow up? Yeah. Yeah, but it, it seemed like they were saying that, 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 that these miracle stories had to somehow be added later or something like that because, well, it, right, it couldn't have been the way it was originally written. But, I mean, good heavens, the Iliad is full of miracles, and yet there's no problem with saying it was transmitted correctly. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, it's yeah. just two different questions. Is it yeah. true and was it transmitted correctly are just two different yeah. Now, I happen to think okay. it's true and it was transmitted correctly, but it yeah. seems like you have to answer them separately, and there's no reason to think because you have give one answer to one that you're going to give a different yeah. answer to the other. Uh, and you, I, you, I can't understand right how they could make that mistake. <laughs> Or am I just being closed-minded about it? It seems to me like I'm just I'm just right about this, and anybody who disagrees with me is a bonehead. But <laughs> there it is. <laughs> um, it's interesting. The last ten years or so in um, in scholarship, looking at the the first. Century, the first three decades of the first, or the third century of the first, the third decade of the first century, um, the books that have been published, more, the, a majority of them all say, these, this is reliable and this must have happened. But the problem is most of those books are published by Christian publishing houses. It's these wild speculations and theories out there. Um, that are that are filled with logical fallacies. Though I'm not a philosopher, so I don't detect them as as well as you do. Um, uh, though I should. If, but um, they're they're all theories. You know. Th- th- so they've they've got they know they've got good historical material, and then they've got these claims and these good th- this good historical material that couldn't have uh, uh, because of the 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 the. The time when the events themselves happen and when the, the claims are actually made, there's not enough time for myth or legend to f- creep in, according to the normal course of how this all happens. So what do they do? They, they, they theorize about what must have happened. 
Well, people, you can theorize all you want, but a theory isn't worth squat unless it's got evidence behind it. And that's what they do. They put forward all these different theories, um, none of which are, are attested uh, evidentially or historically. And so what was, I forget how you describe them. I mean, you're right. Uh, they're all boneheads or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing when you if you get somebody to to face the, the eyewitnesses as his as historical eyewitnesses, not as in, in the inspired word of God, which it absolutely is, but just as eyewitnesses, um, what you typically find, and you probably have found this, is people just don't want to come to terms with it. Uh, they know what it says, and they'll say. Yeah, there's, there's a good, compelling case for it. But uh, as we know, this is the theologian's perspective. The will is bound against this. Um, so, and that's, that's, that's an entirely different issue. Um, this all came to, to, uh, um, to life uh, for me when, in my work with Muslims. When, uh, when you look at the, just the issue of the crucifixion, you can give them all this evidence. And because it doesn't fit with what they believe is true, Going into the investigation, they just rule it out. Um, so they, they, the way to put it is they prefer ideology over fact. And how do you break that? That's something the only, only the Holy Spirit can, can break, I think. Um, yes, sir. As a historian, how do you date the documents that they use? As a historian? The actual manuscripts themselves? The manuscripts, how do they date them? Uh, there are lots of ways. Uh, car, you know, Carbon-14 you know, is reliable up to a certain point in time. Um, sometimes they're cataloged by the library. You know, they've been housed in libraries for for centuries, and so there will be a date will be given to it. Uh, you can tell by sometimes marginal notes in the in the manuscript, the language that's being used, and, and compare it to the context. When were they using this type of language? And I'm not just talking, you know, Coptic or something, but the actual the vocabulary. Um, The type of paper that's being used, the type of ink, the style of writing, all, you, you can, uh, it de- you know, develops historically. And it's fairly, it's a, it's, many people consider this a science. I'm not a paleographer or I don't specialize in this, but uh, those who do, they've got it down to a science. They can tell, they can't date it like Michael Bejent and say, ah, Aramaic, this style of writing, 34 AD. Nobody would do that. That's silly. But within a couple decades, uh, most can, can date things, uh, manuscripts. Um, I hope that answered your question. In the last century, uh, there was a very esteemed Lutheran scholar who put together a book called The Search for the Historical Jesus. And in that book, he came to somewhat different conclusions from the Orthodox Church. And for that, he was had some problems on the other hand, his life following his work sort of overshadowed what he put together as a scholar. Uh, that person was Albert Schweitzer. Do you have a comment upon his search for the historical Jesus? Schweitzer in particular or just the general quest for the historical Jesus? Schweitzer ended up a Unitarian. Uh, um, uh, Strasbourg, I think, was his hometown, or that's where he worked out of uh, mostly. Um, the quest for the historical Jesus, I think, is, is absolutely legitimate. I'm convinced the historical Jesus is the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the 
division that emerged, though, in the, in the 19th century, for example, with Mark, um, uh, Kaler, was this assumption that there's the Christ of Historia, or history, and then there's the Christ of Geschichte, meta-history. And that's the Christ the church believes in. You know, they've constructed this image of who Jesus was that is, might share a lot in common with what the Jesus historians can get at, but is still uh, sort of uh, um, uh, mythologized. And the, uh, the quest for the historical Jesus in the 20th century will say, you know, under the influence of Rudolf Bultmann, that the task of the historian is to demythologize the Christ of faith, to get underneath the text, um, to get to the real Jesus. The, the interesting thing is that whole program has been discredited, um, uh, not in every corner of the, the scholarly world, but in most corners, because it's uh, the, what drives many of these folks, not so much Schweitzer, um, is this assumption that God could not become man, that miracles do not happen. And that's actually an unscientific assumption. You can't assume anything about the contingent world. You've got to actually go and investigate it and see where the evidence points, rather than assuming you think you know what ha- what happens, or rather than assuming that what's uniform and normal for your life holds true throughout all of history and in all times and all places. That's... Um, that's a, I can't speak about Albert Schweitzer in particular. I just don't know enough about him, other than he died a Unitarian. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, if I recall, he um, questioned a lot of the presumptions of, of the quest for the historical Jesus in his own time, and so did some good work, but at the same time um, was ultimately a, a problem, <laughs> to say the least, maybe. All right. Do you have a, one more question? Um, yes. Uh, the question is for the for the for the camera. Um, does Islam have any influence on all of this? Um, just the last fifteen years, absolutely. Uh, the BBC actually put out a documentary a couple years back, questioning whether Jesus was crucified or not. It was all it all stemmed from the Islamic view that Jesus was not crucified. Uh, the Gospel of Barnabas, another one of these non-canonical Gospels. I think we talked about it when we talked about Islam. It's a 15th century forgery. We've known it f- since it was discovered in the early 20th century. But now what they're doing is just simply publishing the text without all the scholarly uh, comments about it or commentary as if it's a legitimate Gospel. Um, so, uh, and but. Another thing you find going on is Islamic apologists or Muslim apologists are using the works of popular scholarship out there, uh, what they, using what they can or what agrees with their own assumptions to, to attack, Christi- excuse me, attack the legitimacy of Christianity or the veracity of Christianity. So you find it also, the new atheist literature. Many of you are familiar with the name Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris, or you know, there are other, Daniel Dennett and others. In their works, where they uh, not only uh, attack faith, as Sam Harris does, they also attack the arguments that Christians have put forward uh, to, to show that it's, there's good reason to believe God exists and there's good reason to believe God took on human flesh and the person work of Jesus. They'll make claims like, we don't even know Jesus existed or not. 
which is the dumbest historical claim one could make, but they draw from the works of like Bart Ehrman and some of these other popular scholars um, with, with, you know, uncritically with, from them. What you see going on then is sort of this teaming up. Not that we want to cower in the corner and, and think that the world's all against us. It actually is, but uh, they're teaming up against historic Christianity. Um, All right. Next week, uh, we'll look at very particular issue of the very particular issue of the, the alleged corruption of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is, the text itself has been altered to to uh, advance a uh, um, a non-historical Jesus that's been divinized. Um, and we'll look at that one next week. Great. Stuff. So what'd you think? I hope you uh, found that to be helpful and edifying and worth your time listening to and that you learned something. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. You can trust that. Amen. Amen.